Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my co-host, Professor of Law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Hey, Ken. Hey, Mike. Before we get started, everyone, I just wanted to say we are currently on our holiday schedule on the Politics Guys, and that means we won't be having the extra supporters-only episode this week, and our next regular weekend episode will be on Saturday, January 7th, to give all of us here a little bit of break to get rested and refreshed for what should be an interesting 2023. Uh, But we, we will have an interview that will drop. For everyone, uh, that should be in your feed somewhere around January 3rd or 4th. And then at that point on the 7th, it's back to our regular schedule. Another update, we're hoping that sometime in early spring, Trey will be back on again with Ken. And which also reminds me, thanks to everyone who supported the show and or increased our level of support in December with, of course, as I've mentioned before, the proceeds from that going to Trey, helping him out during a very tough time. And finally, I wanted to mention before we get going that, you know, we've been on Patreon now for over five years. It was hard for me to realize, but I wanted to say a special thank you at the top of the show to all of that first group of our supporters who are now at the five-year level. There, There are a number of names. You know who you are. And just Thank you very much for years now of support. I feel like there should be like a special medal or badge or something that you get. I don't know, but we really do appreciate it. And Ken and I have a lot to talk about today. We're going to be talking about the George Santos, the January 6th committee final report, Donald Trump's tax returns finally out, the finally having a budget for fiscal year 2023, Zelensky's uh, speech before Congress in the Ukraine situation, migrant being dropped off at Vice President Harris's house on Christmas Eve, a lot of stuff. And we're going to get to that in just one second. All right, Ken. So I thought we'd start off by talking about Representative-elect George Santos. Uh, There's a New York Times investigation of Santos found that he lied about, well, (laughs) a bunch of things, including graduating from college and his work history. Now, Santos has admitted to the lies, telling the New York Post, my sins here are embellishing my resume. I'm sorry. And that I didn't graduate from any institution of higher learning. I'm embarrassed and sorry for having embellished my resume. I own up to that. We do stupid things in life. 
Now, federal and local prosecutors are now investigating whether or not Santos committed any crimes. And he's had a, I guess I'll call it a troubled financial past. And there have been questions that have been raised about omissions from his required financial disclosure forms, as well as how he had the means to lend his congressional campaign $700,000 through some questionable consulting gig. That's a little bit murky, I guess you could say. Now, after Santos is sworn in, the House Ethics Committee may launch their own investigation. But even though some people are calling for the House to just not seat Santos in the first place, it's likely that he'll actually be seated unless he decides not to be sworn in. Uh, at least that's how I understand the qualifications clause. And I believe, Ken, in the past, you've talked specifically about Powell versus McCormick. And it seems to me that would apply in this case as well, right? Yeah, it does. Um, I think there is one, uh, you know, open question where um, uh, Powell McCormick uh, might allow him to be um, excluded. But but generally uh, under under Powell versus McCormick, uh, Congress is not allowed um, to um, exclude uh, somebody if if they meet the, the, the constitutional qualifications to be seated. And, and the only constitutional qualifications are age, U.S. citizenship residency in the state uh from which um he's elected and uh and that he was in fact the winner of the election now here i think the one that there's a a, a shred um that, that maybe he can't meet is the the citizenship requirement it's not clear that he's a u.s citizen um uh and uh um he certainly lived for a long time in brazil uh he's apparently wanted for crimes in brazil um that you know he he says he's a u.s citizen but he's lied about everything else and I think that is something that, that the Congress could look into, and it would be permissible if they judge that he's not a U.S. citizen um, for, for them to exclude him for failing to meet constitutional qualifications. But all the other stuff, I think, would not be grounds for exclusion under, under Powell versus McCormick. Yeah, it seems like the more the more rocks that are turned over, the more people I've been finding. And to me, I guess the most startling thing is it seems like a real failure of opposition research. I mean, uh, Robert Zimmerman, who was the guy who Santos beat, he raised like $3.1 million. And so it's not like the campaign didn't have the resources to look into some really basic things. And I got to wonder, why did it take a New York Times investigation after the fact? Uh, that I guess that to me is one of the more surprising aspects of this. When someone tells such clear, bald-faced, easy-to-check-on lies, how that didn't come up in the campaign. Yeah, and, you know, to, to compound what you just said, Michael, he ran in 2020 yeah. as well. He didn't win. But this is the second time that he actually ran for that same congressional seat. So the opposition researchers had years to work to work on this. And it, it is, uh, I mean, maybe it's just, the, it's another kind of big lie concept, like a, a lie that big, like who could actually suspect that it's a lie? Yeah, you know, yeah. people usually lie about smaller things rather than about their whole entire biography. Yeah, you wouldn't expect, a, I guess, to have to check, well, did he, did he actually graduate from college? We'll just assume that no one would make that up. And yet I think in, in the current political context, it's a good idea to check all of those things on, on someone's resume at this point. Yeah, and, you know, I, I would say, I would add, I would extend also the failure of opposition research extends to his primary opponents within the yeah. Republican Party as well. Right. But but of course, yeah, mainly mainly to the to the Democrats who, who ran against him. And it's a little bit also of a symptom of the the, the, the death of um, daily newspapers in this country, because, you know, he, the New York Times eventually did get around to it. But his 
his district um, in Long Island, you know, Long Island is served by its own newspaper uh, called Newsday. It's a daily. It's got a lot of readers. Um, but I think, you know, all newspapers like that have so many fewer reporters than they used to have that 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 industry is just collapsing. And the, the collapse of the, the local daily newspaper uh, sector is is like a field day for, for crooked politicians, really. I, I feel like that is one of the most underappreciated developments of the last really few decades that the sort of things that are almost certainly going on at city halls and state legislatures and county commissions across the country that that local reporters would have been on when there were that many local reporters. Now it, it gives them practically free reign. And it's it's really when you talk to people who are involved in those things, they will tell you that the amount of oversight has just gone down dramatically. And that's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, here, we're certainly seeing it here. Now, it does seem as though um, the the Long Island Republican Party is uh, is 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 not supporting Santos, and the the district attorney in Nassau County is is who's a Republican is uh, investigating him, and I, I think there's basically no chance that he gets uh, renominated or reelected two years from now, and he may well be indicted on certain crimes before then. Um, but I, I think you're right that the most likely thing is he will actually serve for these two years. And that's, uh, and I think that's, you know, probably how it, it should be. Uh, lying to voters is is not a is not a good thing. But clearly, in many other instances, voters have said that they don't really care if even if they know they're being lied to, like by say a Donald Trump or something like that. So, but yeah, I, I do not think he will have a long and prosperous career in Congress at this point. But apparently, his his consulting business is going great guns. So there, there you go. He can just. Well, you know, the, the, along those lines, it's, the federal investigations are always more opaque than, than local ones. The Nassau County DA is out there announcing she's investigating him locally, but it does seem likely that he could be in big trouble with the Securities Exchange Commission. Uh, they, they already actually, the, the SEC already filed a complaint against um, this, this consultancy called Harbor City, where Santos, that he did, he did, um, uh, you know, he did work there. What he did there is a little bit opaque still, but it was it was a classic Ponzi scheme, and and the SEC is already coming after it. And you know now they'll probably look a little bit harder into you know his role there as well. So he 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 could be he could be distracted away during these two years by by New York State criminal charges or by or by federal charges, I suppose. Too, I, I would expect. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. let, let's move on to something of much even larger, much larger import, and that's the January 6th committee's final report, which was issued on Thursday, December 22nd. We haven't had a chance to talk about that yet, and it was a pretty substantial thing, 845 pages, and the executive summary uh, ran to 193 pages. Now, okay, only 154 pages without the notes. I, I got to wonder if they understand what an executive summary means, but we'll put that aside. Uh, uh, the the key takeaway, I guess, is that the committee wrote that the central cause of January 6th was one man, former President Donald Trump, whom many others followed. None of the events of January 6th would have happened without him. And this report came just a few days after the committee referred the former president to the Justice Department for potential prosecution on four charges, and those would be uh, obstruction of an official proceeding of the U.S. government, conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, and conspiracy to make a false statement. Oh, I forgot 
inciting an insurrection. How could I forget that one? Uh, <laughs> and that was the conclusion of an 18-month investigation that included over 100 subpoena, subpoenas, over 1,000 witness interviews, and review of over a million pages of documents. So a lot went into this. Ken, what do you think came out of it? Was it worth the time and the effort, and was it a good investigation? Yeah, I think it was worth the time and the effort, and it was a good investigation, uh, both. Um, I think the, the release of this 800-plus uh, page report, you know, in the week between Christmas and New Year's, um, is, is not going to have much immediate short-term impact on anything. I think there's very few people who've, who've read it. Uh, there's very few people who right now today would think that it contains anything they didn't already know. Um, but I think it yielded dividends just by having this investigation. I think there was a great deal of impact over the summer when the hearings were televised. Um, I'm sure that um, it did uh, impact the November election. Um, you know, the final report wasn't out yet, but a lot of people, a lot of voters did seem to say that uh, the fate of democracy was an important voting issue in November. And 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 the Democrats did better than people were predicting. And I, I, I've got to believe that that, that, that was because of uh, in part because of the impact of of this committee. Uh, I think the committee did do an extremely good, thorough job of, um, you know, tying everything that happened together. And I think that the, the report is something that people will read and people will be able to, um, you know, uh, um, mine for, for useful information um, over the next couple of years into the next election cycle and also um, in, in, you know, in the course of history. So I, th I think it's all for the good, and I'm, I'm very grateful to the committee for doing the good job that they did. I agree that it was important to be done in the thorough way it was for the historical record, but I am a lot less confident that you are that people, many people will read it, uh, aside from historians and, and already pretty strongly predisposed partisans. And so I don't really think had or has or will have any sort of real political difference. But I think historically, it was important to document this. And, and given that, I, I guess I would raise the question some people have as to whether it made sense that the committee focused so squarely on the person of Donald Trump. And of course, they're right. It wouldn't have happened without him. But, you know, other folks would say, well, is the real if there is a real threat to democracy, a significant threat, is that threat Donald Trump or is that threat more sort of the machinery and the, the, the political incentive system that allowed and enabled Donald Trump? And I would argue that it's much more that. And the committee really didn't focus as much on the officials and the machinery that kind of allowed this to happen, but more on that one individual and Donald Trump, for better or worse, I would say for better, will be leaving the political scene at some point in the not too distant future, just because people age and die. And without those issues being those the systemic, you know, fundamental issues being addressed, I think the stage is still set for someone who's very much like Donald Trump, but is a lot more strategically uh, uh App, I guess, not inept like Donald Trump was to be able to to use that sort of. So that's my, I guess, that's my take on it. Well, nothing, nothing that the uh, committee did uh, precludes, you know, more people from continuing to look into the the types of um, issues that you're talking about. You know, I, I think the committee had to deal with a few constraints. You know, not only the constraints of um, time, which was a very pressing one because 
it, it seemed clear the whole time they were working that the the Dems might not have the majority uh, after the new year, and in fact they won't. So that put a pretty uh, a fixed deadline on 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 how much time they had. Um, and and they did actually pass a lot of important legislation during these two years. So the 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 members couldn't spend all their time working on this committee. They also had to legislate. There was also a, a constraint um, that although although the Republicans love to demonize uh, Liz Cheney and and Adam Kinzinger, um, you know by all accounts uh, those two Republicans who were on the committee um, played a role in limiting um, the extent to which uh, the the report could really uh, focus on. Republican members of Congress, and and they they actually I think we're running some interference for and protecting um, some members of of of, of Congress, uh, some Republican members of Congress who who were part of this conspiracy, and uh, and they um, and and you know there were there were publicly aired leaks from staff who were very much complaining about that 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 they thought that the Republican members of the committee were were forcing uh, an excessive focus on on Trump. But but you know the, the it was important that the um, that Kinzinger and and Cheney um, you know remain you know fully engaged in the work of the committee and so I think the committee had to bend in their direction a little bit and you know they did produce a lot of information they are releasing all the full transcripts of all the interviews that they did so you know besides the 845 page report there's thousands of pages more um, that that are going to be released and. I think that the kind of stories that you're talking about, um, other historians can write, other journalists can write, doesn't have to be in this 845-page report because all the source material uh, for, for pulling together uh, more complete narratives has been um, assembled, or at least a lot of it has been assembled by the work of this committee. Do you think that the Senate will or should launch their own investigation? You know, in the past, We've we've talked about how in the next Congress, the Senate, that Senate Democrats will be able to do things like that, because now with an actual working majority, they'll be they'll have uh, subpoena power. Do you you think that would be a a good thing? And if you do or even if you don't, do you think it's something that Senate Democrats would consider? You know, it's it's uh, it's hard to say. Um, You know, I think that that there's a lot of variables or contingencies that go into that calculation. Um, one is, do they really think there's more out there that they would be able to bring to light that isn't already in um, all the materials that the House has put together? And by all the materials, I mean not only the final report, but also all the, the transcripts of interviews and depositions and things. I, I don't think there's much reason um, to, you know, start to, to, to start up a, a separate Senate investigation unless they really think there's more that that hasn't already been discovered. So just just doing it to to keep um, amplifying uh, the same um, uh, basic um, information and narrative, I, I think, would not be a good use of their time. As you pointed out already, you know, they, they'd really just be preaching to the converted and it would, it would make it um, very easy for um, uh, Republicans to just be dismissive of it and, and say that this is just rehash of the same stuff. So that's that's one contingency. I don't know what else is out there to be discovered, but I think there'd have to be some bonafide belief that there is something new that they haven't gotten to yet. The, the other thing that I think is going to be uh, other contingencies that go into that, one would actually be the attitude of, of, of Mitch McConnell about it. And I think that's a little hard to read. You know, I think I think if McConnell really doesn't want that, then, um, you know, it's not necessarily the, 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 the battle that um, Schumer and the Dems want to, you know, really have with him. You know, on the other hand, I don't know how, you know, McConnell might kind of be open to it. I mean, it's very hard to read. If, if McConnell kind of tacitly says to Schumer, 
you know, I'm not going to uh, try to, you know, interfere with this if you guys go ahead and do this. That might that might invite uh, a little more investigating. And, you know, that would all be kind of behind the scenes, those kind of dialogues. So I don't know how that would go. And then the final contingency would be um, to the extent to which the, 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 the it would cost them any ability to do any any other work. You know, I think their ability to do legislation will be very curtailed because the Republicans have the, the House. But um, but they you know still do have a lot of vacancies to fill in the judiciary in the administration. Uh, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, ma- maintaining the ability of the Senate to put all its energy into moving forward, you know, at least, at least confirmations, if not legislation, you know, I think they wouldn't necessarily want to distract from that in order to um, do these, these hearings. And, and I, I, uh, I would like to see every single judicial vacancy filled in the, in the next couple of years so that in January of 25, there's not a single judicial vacancy to fill. That is, uh, I think that's that's a good goal that all Democrats should share, and I definitely don't want anything distracting the uh, Senate Democrats from that. In the end, I, d- I don't think there will be a Senate committee that will be investigating that for the reasons that, that you mentioned. I just don't think there's a whole lot else out there that would be found that were that would be politically advantageous. So, but we, we shall see. All right, before we move on to our next story, we'll just take a quick break and then get back and talk about Donald Trump's tax returns, finally. So after years of trying, House Democrats finally got access to Donald Trump's tax returns, and they decided to make those returns public. Now, the ostensible reason for the tax record request by the Ways and Means Committee was so that Congress could oversee, understand the IRS's program of mandatory presidential tax audits, or it's more of a policy, I guess you could say. Now, it appears that those audits, though, aren't exactly as mandatory as most people thought they were, as the IRS only began a single audit during Trump's four years in office, and that audit wasn't completed before he left office in January of 2021. And it's not clear as to why there wasn't an audit every year, and there's, but there's no indication that this was due to any kind of a pressure from the Trump administration, though, again, we, we don't know. Uh, I, I've, been, I've gone on record, you know, in various forums saying that I think that it was a certainly a legitimate request, but I have problems with sort of how the House Ways and Means Committee did things, especially their decision to make these record tax records public. But Ken, what's your take on it? Yeah, I, I I heard you talking about that. I, I agree with their decision to make it public, although I acknowledge some of the qualms that you uh, that, that you raised. I think those are legitimate qualms. But um, I think the reason that it was right for them to make it public, um, even though I would agree that it's it's it it it, it does set a precedent um, for you know probably more people's taxes are going to be made public now through this same uh, mechanism, and there are there are some concerns about that. Is um, you know, ultimately, uh, Trump, um, you know, he 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 lied a lot about a lot of things. Right. He he lied ab- about the idea that he would release his tax returns once once his audit was over. Um, you know, so he never actually took the position um, I, that he was just never going to release his tax returns. He always took the position. I, I have no problem releasing my tax returns. I've just just got to wait till this audit is over. Now, that was always ridiculous because there really would be no reason not to release them, even if he was being audited. But it's doubly risible when you take account of the fact that he knew he wasn't being audited, even though Treasury regulations required him to be um, audited. 
Um, and also every president had, re- every president, at least since Ford, had released his tax returns. So the idea, well, you know, now this is going to create a precedent that if a president doesn't release their tax returns, the House Ways and Means will go ahead and release it anyhow. I, I think that's a fine precedent, at least as applied to the U.S. presidents. I don't see any problem with that. I'd like to see that happen to every future president. Um, I'd like to see them codify a law that automatically releases the tax returns. And in fact, the IRS audits of every single U.S. president. And if this ends up getting into you know other people's tax returns besides um, presidents, I don't have a huge problem with it um, if it's limited at least to people who are uh, elected officials or people who are in high ranking um, uh, appointed office um, in the U.S. government. You know, I, I just don't see really that that's such a terrible slippery slope. I, I, I would like to see a little more tax transparency um, among the people um, uh, who are running our government. So I, I sort of agree that that will wind up happening now that this precedent has been established. But I don't in, in the end, I don't see what's so bad about it. So. And I certainly think the public has a right to see, um, you know, Donald Trump's taxes. I mean, he he is actually a tax cheat, and that's the reason that he didn't release his taxes. And I think, you know, the the, the idea that people wondered whether he was actually a tax cheat or not, you know, pe- people I believe do have the right to know. I, I'm with you part of the way there. I, I agree that the IRS policy should be codified into a law, and that. The House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee uh, should regularly check to make sure that those audits are happening and also that those audits are real significant audits, especially when you're dealing with someone who has sort of vast financial holdings that Donald Trump does. I disagree about automatically forcing those records to be public, although certainly if an audit indicates some tax issues, then I would expect that to be uh, prosecuted, I and, and that potentially made that would be made public. But I also don't know that I agree that Donald Trump is a tax cheat. I believe that he certainly has employed a lot of people to get him to avoid as much tax as is possible. But I don't know that we we can say that any of that was illegal. That's why you have the audits in the first place. And to me, the larger problem here this this highlights the larger problem of the IRS not having the capability to do a lot of audits of these big, complex returns. I mean, from one report, there was one guy who was the, the, the Donald Trump audit guy, the IRS, and Donald Trump has an army of tax attorneys and other folks and was basically outgunned by that. And there are a lot of these cases where even if the IRS might want to do an audit, they just don't have the capability or the capability to go as deep as they want, so they have to take accounting firms word basically for these things and that is a big problem and it's an even bigger problem because you have one political party that is talking about armies of 87,000 auditors who are coming out to get you Mr and Mrs regular american when that's not really the case at all and that that to me is the bigger problem well michael i do want to follow up on my tax cheat claim since you said you're not sure, sure he is I mean, I'm, I'm sure he is. Okay. And, and the 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 the, uh, the the New York Times uh, article about his. You no, know, we haven't seen the tax returns yet. We're recording on on Thursday, and they're they're not going to be released to the public until tomorrow, Friday. If if people are listening on on Friday night or Saturday, they probably will have been released by then. But but the New York Times has already reported on a number of irregularities in them that seem to me, you know, each of these probably amounts to an illegality, and there's a lot of them. So you know, among the among the irregularities. Um, the, the tax returns disclose um, that, that um, Donald Trump, uh, his children, 
Donald Jr., Ivanka, and Eric um, all loaned a lot of money uh, to, to him, um, which he paid back to them with interest quickly. Um, and then he wrote the interest payments on the debt off as business expenses. Um, it seems much more likely that he was just giving money to his children, and, and that should not be something that you can write off. Um, but he structured it in, in what seems obviously to me to be a fraudulent way um, as that his children were loaning him, him money at, at some kind of arm's length interest bearing transaction. He was paying it back to them. Um, I don't know why that would be, you know, why there'd be any business context for that to be done. Um, another one is that he seems to have um, d- deducted um, from his, his um, business uh, the, the money that he had to pay to settle all the fraud claims against Trump University. But he also um, seems to have collected insurance proceeds. Um, to, to pay some of those claims. Um, and you're not allowed to write off something like that if you collect insurance proceeds to pay it. Um, so that was in there. Um, he charged a lot of um, what seemed to be personal expenses as business expenses, including, for instance, $70,000 that was paid uh, for his haircuts while he was on The, um, the Apprentice. Um, that, that It seems inconceivable that he needed to spend $70,000 on haircuts to appear on TV. Have you um, seen his hair? I don't Apprentice. know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, and certainly I think if if you look at almost any very rich person's taxes and you kind of put them under a microscope like that, you're going to find things that seem wrong. And I'm not be clear. I am not saying that Donald Trump didn't engage in going right up to that line in tax avoidance. But I am going to give Donald Trump the presumption of innocence until there actually is, you know, if if, if there if there are things that are potentially criminal offenses, then I would certainly expect him to be uh, him to be charged with those offenses. But until then, I'm, I'm going to assume that that is tax avoidance and not necessarily fraud, though, if there is fraud, I definitely want to see. I mean, because Donald Trump's folks, of course, will have to have and should have. The opportunity to respond to this and explain why they believe these are, in fact, legitimate deductions or transactions, that sort of thing. Well, but Michael, that, that's the benefit of releasing these these returns to the public is that, you know, you can come to your, your conclusion that there's no no fraud there. I can come to my conclusion that there is fraud there. We, we can actually look at the tax returns. And I, I don't think it's it's reasonable to, to think that with with presidents of the United States, that they should get that same um, presumption that things that look like fraud. Uh, we must presume that they're not fraud unless they're actually indicted, because we know that, you know, no president of the United States has ever been indicted. And, and in this case, at least so far, um, Trump was able to um, use his un, uh, undue influence with the with the IRS to prevent them from even auditing, which their policy required them to do, you know, much less um, indicting. So I, I think there's a lot of structural reasons to think that sunshine is going to be a better disinfectant when we're dealing with a, a president. Um, than, than, than the criminal justice system will be. It, it, presidents might get away with a lot of crimes and not be indicted for it. And so far, Donald Trump has certainly done that in other contexts. So I, I think it, that's why really we need to have these releases. The final thing I forgot to say before about sort of general privacy issues, you know, I, I, you, know you and I, you know, the, we haven't had our IRS tax returns publicly released. So, um, but, so maybe we would say, well, why should Donald Trump have to have that if you or I haven't had that? But in fact, you know, you and I don't have that much financial privacy. Our we're we're uh, employees of a state government of a state university. Um, our salaries are a public record. Anyone could look those up. And and you know, at least for me, um, you know, if someone looked at my salary, which is a public record, 
they'd have virtually all of the information that's in my IRS tax return. You know, that, that's really where my income comes from. And so it's not that it's not that private. And so I, I think the idea that um, a, a president of the United States um, should get, you know, not, not just the same privacy as everybody else, which sounds like an appealing thing, but actually a lot more privacy than everybody else, you know, because I think many people are in situations where, you know, big aspects of their um, uh, financial uh, um, profile are, are, not, are not as private as they think. Um, you know, that, that's another reason I, I think, you know, even even the, the idea that this is some kind of especially unfair thing. Nobody's getting any more information about Donald Trump than, than they could really get about you or me in terms of how much money we make. At least, well, yeah, yeah, I, I see your point. And that's I think that's a reasonable a reasonable argument, one that, in fact, I, I argued at one point, you could say should apply to members of Congress and Supreme Court justices as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm OK with that. I, I, I don't see I don't see bipartisan legislation in the 118th Congress uh, along those lines for <laughs> I think that's highly <laughs> unlikely, I would say. But no, I think that's a, that, that's a fair point, actually. So. All right. Well, let's uh, speaking of uh, finances, let's move on. That was a horrible segue. I don't care. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Congress finally approved a budget for fiscal year 2023, which, as most folks know, began uh, nearly two months ago. Now, Jay and I have already discussed the framework for what was what was actually passed. And so nothing really significant changed there. The, Pen the Pentagon did great, as it almost always does. They got around a 10 percent increase. Uh, there are also, though, a number of provisions that should make it easier for a few Amer well, many Americans to save for retirement. Uh, and the big non-budget item that I've, I wanted to talk about, and this kind of relates to uh, first one of our first stories, earlier stories, is the reform of the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which now makes clear the vice president's ministerial role in announcing the electoral vote totals and raises the threshold for Congress to object to a state's electors from a single member in both chambers to now 20% of both chambers. And that was, in fact, one of the recommendations. If you got to the end of the January 6th committee report, that was one of their recommendations to enact that. There was also more aid for Ukraine included in this package, $47.4 billion, on top of the roughly $68 billion that's previously been allocated. And finally, I wanted to note that the bill, the final bill, included a ban on TikTok on all federal government devices, and that follows a similar ban in a number of states, also something Jay and I discussed not too long ago on the show. So, Ken, any thoughts on the budget in general or any of those specific kind of non-budget elements that were put into the big omnibus? Well, I'm, I'm glad they reformed the Electoral Count Act. Um, you know, I, 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 it, it seems to me that the changes to the Electoral Count Act are, are largely uh, symbolic, um, but I guess they could have some practical uh, significance. Um, it, 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 it shouldn't have been necessary um, to, to amend the Electoral Count Act to, to make it a little bit harder uh, for um, a, a political party in Congress to, to, to steal the election. Um, uh, but, you know, I'm glad they did it. It does. I, I think it, the most important thing about that is that it's, it's a rebuke uh, against the members of Congress who actually did. Um, lodge frivolous objections to, to the vote count uh, in in 2020, um, but um, other stuff I guess in the in the bill I, I noticed uh, you know unfortunately in in my uh, view one of the uh, provisions that's in there is going to um, which was a a, a special uh, uh, just something Senator Susan Collins wanted and she had a lot of uh, uh, clout in this negotiation um, there's going to be um, a, a, a 
for for main for the main lobster industry um there's going to be an exemption to the um uh marine mammal protection act that's going to greatly endanger um certain species of whales off the coast of maine um so you know right now uh it's illegal for lobster for people who go out uh catching lobsters to use certain uh methods of catching lobsters that tend to kill endangered whales and uh th- this this omnibus budget bill did did bury in there a, a, i think a very evil provision um, that will um, allow these whales to continue to be killed. It'll probably cause them to go extinct. So that's one thing that I, I did not like. Um, there's also actually some big cuts to uh, Medicaid spending, um, even though you know it's it's a bill that's a big budget bill, and there's a lot of increases in spending in a lot of places. Um, there's going to be a number of people um, who are going to lose uh, Medicaid uh, eligibility, um, uh, particularly um, low-income people who don't have children uh, primarily. Um, and so I don't think that's good. Um, uh, I, I, yeah, the other stuff you guys covered, I don't think it's necessary for the Pentagon to get as much of an increase as it's getting. Uh, I do support the supplemental for, for Ukraine aid, but most of the um, increases in, in military spending are not um, uh, linked to, um, uh, to, to the, the uh, Ukraine operations. Um, and I think it's probably too much. A lot more money for um, F-35, 61 more F-35 fighter jets. Um, you know, 8.5 billion for that. Um, uh, 2.5 billion for to buy uh, these new KC-46 tankers. Um, this this seems to me like very very wasteful spending, um, and so I'm not thrilled with that. Um, I know there's so much in there; it's kind of yeah. hard to think of uh, exactly what to say. But those are some some things that caught my well, eye. One thing that I really like, I mentioned retirement provisions. Now, there's a there's a requirement now that uh, after 2025 for retirement plans that companies. Uh, that companies basically will require employers to automatically enroll anyone who's eligible for their retirement plans as opposed to asking them if they want to be enrolled. So it's an opt out. You'd have to opt out your company's retirement plan as opposed to opting in. And there's been a bunch of research on what they call nudges to show that that can make a huge difference in getting people to start saving for retirements. And that's the sort of little thing that can actually make a pretty big difference. And it's one, I would say, fairly positive development. Yeah, uh, making use of behavioral economics. Exactly. Um, uh, it is it is good. I, the only thing about it, I I, I I have to study this a little bit more, but um, it seems to me like it, it's uh, it would be good if it was real. I don't know how real it is because it it says that em- employer provided plans that already exist are going to be exempt from this. So, for instance, you know, you you and I work in in Northern Kentucky University. We have a retirement plan um, that that we're already in that's been existing for a while. Uh, my read of this is that they will never um, uh, come within the coverage of this new provision. That this is only going to apply to employer provided plans where the plans themselves are started ah, okay. in the year 20, 2025 ah. or later. Um, so existing plans will never be covered by this, and I think that means you know not very many American workers will actually benefit from this new rule. Um, so it, it's 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 a good rule, but I think it may be more symbolic in terms of setting a standard that hopefully, um, you know, uh, employers that are not actually covered by it might voluntarily get into compliance with because it's seen as a best practice. But I think it's pretty um, pretty light regulation in terms of what plans will actually be covered by it. The other retirement provisions, I guess, which I think are good, although I think the more important one is mainly going to benefit wealthy people. Um, the, the two other re- retirement provisions, one is um, for lower income people, what they call the savers credit, that um, if, if people um, who are in low and medium income ranges 
voluntarily put um, a, a, a substantial amount of money into a a, um, a Roth IRA, they can they can get a, up to a thousand dollar tax credit for that. Um, I think that's a good thing, but that's only a thousand dollars. The other one is that for for much wealthier people who are over age sixty, um, they're going to greatly increase the um, amount uh, of income that can be diverted into uh, a four hundred one k or a four hundred three b. And I think again that that'll that'll be good. You know, it, it, I'll be over sixty soon enough, and and my kids are grown up, and I'll I'll probably divert as much as I can um, into my four hundred one k at that point, but. But you know that's only going to benefit people who actually have twenty-seven or thirty or thirty-five thousand dollars a year that they can uh, afford to divert um, into a four hundred one k. But I think that's you know that's the bigger one. It certainly is going to help a certain category of people over sixty do some very large uh, last-minute um, retirement savings, and I I think that's good. But I, I think there's a real limit on who that's going to help. Yeah, I you know I on that on that first thing you mentioned the the legislative language I. I read it. I read it to understand that it would apply to anyone enrolling in those plans from 2025 on. But of course, that's a big, that's a pretty important distinction. Obviously, is if it's if the language is if the, the interpretation is actually just for new plans as opposed to people starting existing plans. You're right that that would have a very limited, a very limited impact. Yeah, I mean, I'm not certain about it. I was just reading the language. I think there will have to be regulations that are uh, promulgated by the relevant uh, federal agencies that are involved with um, regulating these plans. And, and, and that, that language itself will be probably um, influenced by which, which political administration is in. Um, so I think we'll have to wait and see. But I, I, think the, I think the language certainly could be read the way I was reading it. So it's just something I, I, I just want yeah. you know, to monitor that. Well, what did you what did you think about the the TikTok ban? Jay and I talked about state TikTok bans, I think, last week on the show, and I I basically had came out with the position that I'm okay given the security concerns of even there was legislation's been introduced to prohibit TikTok from operating in the United States essentially, and Jay had big big problems with that, and I wanted to get your position on that. Yeah, I think I'm on Jay's side on that All one. All right. I, I would, uh, yeah, I would, uh, I, you know, I, I think it's good that the government is taking TikTok off of government devices, but I'd say, you know, I think it would be good really also to take uh, Facebook and, and Twitter and, you know, Mastodon and all these things off government devices. I, I don't see really any, uh, I don't, I, I think, yeah, TikTok poses special problems because it, it's affiliated with the Chinese government. But I really think, um, you know, government employees, you know, what do they need all that stuff on their government devices for? You know, at best, it's going to just enable them to waste time while they're getting paid to do their government jobs. And at worst, it's going to create, you know, various kinds of vulnerabilities that can be exploited by all kinds of people, not not just the Chinese government. And I, I just to me, it's kind of a no brainer to get that stuff off of the government devices, all of it. Um, you know, I think there is um, a little bit of an unfortunate element of just um China bashing, which is a little bit of an appeal to um, uh, nativism or even racism, um, you know, in the kind of outsized concern about, well, this has something to do with China and that's why we need to get it off. And, you know, I think that there are some legitimate concerns when, it, when you're talking about government devices, but I, I think that um, those concerns are less legitimate um, when you're talking about, you know, if, if, I, if, I have a, if, if I have TikTok and I use it to watch cat videos and people dancing, and the and the the uh, Chinese government is monitoring that. 
you know, you know, so what? Why, why is it any worse for the government, uh, Chinese government to be monitoring that than for, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk to be monitoring uh, my use of the other social media platforms? I don't I don't really I don't really see why the, the identity of TikTok as a Chinese government entity would be relevant if we're talking about non-government devices. Now, if that that changes to, say, a question of potentially injecting some sort of, you know, bug, spyware, other sort of thing that could have larger implications. I don't know the extent to which that would that would be possible, because, of course, there are there are uh, protocols and in, in, in place to ensure that any uh, any app designer can't just go ahead and, you know, infect devices, that sort of thing. And I expect that would apply as well. Here's my, my ignorance of app design. But is that is that a concern? I mean, given the technological sophistication of the Chinese government and that this this is on so many devices, what what if they're able to, you know, promulgate some sort of virus or worm or something like that? Is that or is that you think just more China bashing? Yeah, it's it's I guess I, I'll sort of I think it's a serious concern that um, social media can can allow uh, vulnerabilities that allow people to do that. I, I don't, um, you know, I, I don't. I, I think it is China bashing to think that the, the the because the Chinese government owns a piece of TikTok that that they would have more um, ability to do that or more motive to do that than anyone else. You know, I think, for instance, Russia does not own a piece of any of the social media platforms that we use, um, but they seem to have been pretty good at exploiting different types of vulnerabilities um, in them, you know, primarily to spread disinformation. But, uh, you know, I think they, they could do it to spread viruses. I believe that the U.S. has, um, you know, which doesn't own any piece of, say, the Iranian social media networks, you know, has managed sometimes to exploit vulnerabilities to, um, you know, insert uh, um, viruses and things like that. That have, that have shut down um, uh, Iranian government computers and things like that. So I, I think, you know, if you're talking about very sophisticated players with very sophisticated um, uh, technology, there, there's already enough vulnerabilities there that they could find their, their way in and if they wanted to. And, and just, you know, I don't think it would do that much to, to pr- protect us against um, the, the kind of thing you're talking about um, to, to, to just specifically ban uh, TikTok. Yeah, I, I- I tend to think that's that sounds like a reasonable analysis of it. And the one thing that we we also talked about with the budget, and you mentioned that you were in favor of the supplemental uh, for Ukraine on defense, and of course that comes right after uh, President Zelensky spoke to a joint session of Congress. It was kind of a brief speech, but he he made the point that uh, your money is not charity; it's investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. And, you know, support for Ukraine was, has been to this point very strongly bipartisan. But I should point out, number one, there were uh, a few of the Republicans in attendance were pretty clearly less than enthusiastic about Zelensky's remarks, right? Uh, the usual cast, uh, Matt Getz, Boebert, Jordan, those folks, uh, they didn't rise for standing ovations. But maybe more noteworthy, is that only 90 House Republicans, that's fewer than half, even bothered to attend Zelensky's speech. And that, of course, included, Kenneth, it'll come no surprise to you, Kentucky's Thomas Massey. Um, he tweeted, I'm in D.C., but I will not be attending the speech of the Ukrainian lobbyists. And the American taxpayers have been conscripted into making welfare payments to this foreign government. And if we want to go really lunatic fringe and why not, 
Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted, of course, the shadow president has to come to Congress and explain why he needs billions of Americans taxpayer dollars for the 51st state, Ukraine. This is absurd. Put America first. Uh, So, Ken, what do you what do you make of all that, especially, I guess, the non-attendance by over half of House Republicans? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's appalling. Um, the the not, not only was Zelensky correct that um, th- this is not a, a, the U.S. aid to the U.S. military support for Ukraine is not a charity to Ukraine. It, it's an investment in U.S. national security. Um, it's 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 a much better investment in U.S. national security than almost anything else in our military budget is, uh, because the Ukrainians. For free, you know, we're not paying them. Um, they're doing all the actual work of fighting Russia, and and the only part that we're paying for is is some of the hardware and technology that we're giving them, which is leveraging our dollars um, to an incredible uh, um, uh, multiplier. And, uh, and and they're and they're doing you know an incredibly good job. Um, and so I, I think it's it's uh, the, the 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 only explanation I can see. For, for why um, any member um, of Congress, uh, you know, would, would say those kind of things or, or would boycott the speech is that they are, you know, very much, you know, pro-Putin, pro-Russian, anti-democracy, and I would say anti-American. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I think it's just a little more prosaic than that, just that they're, they don't really necessarily see any advantage. They know there are elements of their party who are, for various reasons, are... I wouldn't say pro-Putin exactly, but believe that anything that looks good for Joe Biden and the Biden administration is bad for them. And so therefore, since it's a zero-sum game, there's no point in their, their showing up and you know, it, the decision whether or not we stand or not for the ovations. It's, it's, a, good, it's a good moment for, Democrat, for a Democratic administration, so they're going to stay away. That, I think that's for most Republicans, basically, as far as it goes. And yeah, there are some who maybe fawn over dictators. There's that kind of weird little cult of Viktor Orban and that sort of thing. But I think that's really kind of a very small rump element of the Republican Party. Well, even under the way you're looking at it, um, so let, let's say that's that's correct. I'll say your description description could be correct for many of them. Um, I would still call that anti-American because if their position is, well, it's, it's more important to us that um, Joe Biden who is president of the United States, um, not have any successes, um, then that um, America take actions that, that's good for America's national security. So in other words, if Biden is president and he successfully defends democracy and successfully defends American national security, and, and that would redound well to, to Biden politically, um, you know, then they have to make a choice. Well, which is more important to you, you know, harming Biden politically or, or helping um, America be a strong country that defends democracy, then, then I, I think it is fair to say they're anti-American um, if they think it, it, it's worth harming the country, harming the national security of the country, harming democracy um, in order to not give some political benefit to, um, to, to Biden. And I, I, as I understand your analysis of it, that's basically what you said their calculation is. And, and I think it's, it's fair to call that anti-American. See, I think how they would view it, is sort of a reversal of the famous Kennedy speech, right? They'll pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship to, you know, ensure the survival and success of the Republican Party. And that's that's how that's the worldview. 
and you know, there's there's a worldview kind of to the far left. I think in some elements of the Democratic Party, but I'd argue it's more pronounced in some elements of the Republican Party. And so they see themselves as that's actually this is the greater good. And I, I certainly would disagree with that, but I think that's that's the reasoning. And of course, this all gets tied up with our weird history with Ukraine, right? And then we'll bring in Hunter Biden and his consulting, and you know, all there's all kinds of stuff going on with that. But to me, a, a larger concern here is how long this current Ukraine funding is going to last that we talked about that in the budget. Now the aid that was at 47, whatever billion was designed to keep Ukraine going until the end of fiscal year, 2023, that's October of 2023. But if you take a look at the current spending rate, that money's only going to last until May, but either way, there's going to need to be, uh, unless we assume that the war is going to be over at that point, which I think is not a good assumption to make, Ukraine's going to need more funding. And the big question to me and to everyone should be, well, will, will, Joe, will the Biden administration and Senate Republicans be able to get enough House Republicans on board to support more Ukraine aid? And, and you know, will, will Speaker McCarthy, assuming he's Speaker, will he even let that come to the floor? Uh, what, now, you've, you've, you've talked about this in the past. You've expressed some doubts. What do you think? Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to come up in this next year whether it's in May or September or what have you, what do you think is going to happen? I don't think uh, McCarthy's going to let that come to the floor. Um, you know, there, there are some mechanisms in the House for discharge petitions and things like that, where if, um, uh, I guess, Hakeem Jeffries and, and the Dems can manage to convince, you know, a dozen Republicans um, to join them, um, they, they could issue a, 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 try to get a discharge petition but I think even some Republican members who would um, vote in favor of that aid if it came to the floor um, still might not be willing to, to buck their leadership that much as to sign a discharge petition against McCarthy to, to, to bring it to the floor. So I, I'm very pessimistic about whether there's going to be any uh, supplementals after, after this for Ukraine. I, I suppose the one good thing about the enormously bloated uh, Pentagon budget that um, is, was just passed is that I think with the, with the level of waste that's in there, uh, it'll certainly be possible to redeploy um, some of those resources. Um, the, you know, the, the White House will be able to redeploy some of those resources um, from other parts of the, the defense budget um, into uh, uh, future resources for the Ukraine operations. Um, and that's more what I'd expect to see happen. Yeah, I I disagree. I think there will be uh, supplemental funding for Ukraine. Now, I don't think it's going to be an easy victory, but but I do think there are enough House Republicans who care about this. And it's a lot, you know, Jay often talks about free votes. And when you know that the funding's going to pass or the measure's going to pass, it's a lot easier to vote against it, if you, even if you think it's a good thing. And so, but, but I think there are enough Republicans who understand the importance of supporting Ukraine, that this will happen. Ukraine will not go wanting for for funds because of Republican, uh, unified Republican opposition. And so we'll see, Ken, whether you have taken a, a number of victory laps here on the show in the past. And I think we both hope this is an instance in which I'm the one that gets to take the victory lap. Yeah, well, I will say if it comes to the floor, then I'm sure you'll be the one taking the victory lap. I, I, I think if this if this comes to the if more Ukraine aid comes to the floor, it passes. But but I think that there's um, I think if for McCarthy to be able to get uh, ultimately, to be the speaker, he's going to be—he's already making a lot of representations to the far right in his in his in his party, 
that he's he's not going to do things like bring this to the floor. Right. Yeah, I, I certainly think he'll be pressured, but I think one way or the other it gets to the floor and it passes. So we'll find out at some point in 2023. So finally, let's have what's well, not exactly a Christmas story, but it's a Christmas related story because on Christmas Eve, uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott gave Vice President Harris a, a gift of three busloads of migrants who were dropped off at the Naval Observatory, which is the official residence of vice presidents. Now, this wasn't entirely unexpected. There was a local grassroots group who had foreknowledge of the buses coming up, and so they were able to meet the migrants with clothes and food and shelter and that sort of thing. But uh, a White House spokesperson responding to this said, Governor Abbott abandoned children on the side of the road in below freezing temperatures on Christmas Eve without coordinating with any federal or local authorities. This was a cruel, dangerous, and shameful stunt. In response, on December 27th, Abbott tweeted that Texas has bussed over 15,900 migrants to sanctuary cities, over 8,900 D.C., 4,900 to New York City, 1,500 to Chicago, 630 to Philadelphia, and that we're providing relief to local communities overwhelmed by President Biden's open border policies. And if you're curious, according to Texas's Division of Emergency Management, the cost of busing programs, this migrant busing programs, it's a little bit over $12 million to this point, which, if you do the math, works out to roughly $750 per migrant bus, give or take. Uh, what, what, do you, uh, what do you take away from this, Ken, especially, I guess I should mention, in light of the Supreme Court's recent 5-4 to four decision that blocked the ruling from a U.S. district judge directing the Biden administration to end the so-called Title 42 policy that's in place for now. It just basically pushes migrants back to their home countries without even an asylum hearing. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's um, there is a a a kernel of legitimacy, I think, to the um, position of of uh, border state governors that the the whole problem of um, illegal immigration shouldn't fall only you know on on one uh, state. I think there's a kernel of legitimacy to that, but I, I I think you know whatever kernel of legitimacy there is to that um, is is completely undermined by the the sort of you know uh, stunt like wanton cruelty um, that that these kind of that, that these kind of stunts um, represent. Uh, you know if 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 this was anything other than a political stunt that with a total lack of concern for the the human beings involved. Um, I, I think it's it would be reasonable to have a dialogue with the U.S. government and even with governors of other states about how um, there could be some um, or, orderly uh, distribution of um, of migrants um, to different parts of the country. And I think there's a lot of parts of the country that would welcome them more than Texas does, you know, if there were uh, provisions made um, for, for where to house them and, and how to take care of them. But just dumping them on Christmas Eve, it, it's appalling. It, some of these people didn't even have winter clothing, and they're they're dumped, you know, from from you know on on the street in 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 the middle of a polar vortex, um, in front of the uh, the vice president's house. Um, you know, there's this meme going around on the internet where you know, which I think is kind of apt, where it said something like, you know, um, you know, uh, that's just exact. Jesus, you know, taught for Christmas that you should round up the needy and then, you know, send them to who knows where and not worry about it because it's not your problem. You know, that, that, you know, and I think that kind of encapsulates sort of what, uh, what, you know, what, what Abbott was doing here. I, I think that the means by which he did this are just 
inhumane and and appalling. Um, but I, but I, but yet I, I think it, it probably should be there. Probably should be some long term planning, and maybe Congress should have budgeted for this for how to you know in a more orderly way um, d- d- distribute uh, uh, migrants and refugees um, to other places while they while they wait for their asylum hearings. Yeah, I agree about the, the cruelty. I mean, clearly for you know to throw some red meat to the base there, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been that difficult to court to let. To let officials know that these buses were coming and to give people some basic, you know, even secondhand coats and things like that, it wouldn't have cost that much more. I I am sympathetic to the enormous burden that some of these border cities especially are under. I mean, El Paso has just been completely inundated. I think over 100,000 migrant encounters in the last couple of months. They're just not equipped to deal with that. And, you know, there have been efforts to try to work out some kind of compromise. In fact, Senators, uh, Senator Sinema and uh, Tillis were working on something just in the last month, a deal that would have basically provided a pathway to citizenship for a few million dreamers in the country in exchange for just tens of billions of dollars more for border security and other uh, enhancements to try to deal with these problems. But it, it completely fell apart because no one wanted to give on this issue. And so it, it's deeply frustrating and Congress needs to act, which to me, brings me back to Title 42. Uh, I, I, I tend to agree, this is not a, a, something I say a lot, I tend to agree with Justice Gorsuch on this. It's almost hard to come out of my mouth, but uh, you know, he said in the end that uh, in his dissent, which was joined by Justice Jackson as well, he said that uh, the, you know, the current border crisis is not a COVID crisis. And courts should not be in the business of perpetuating administrative edicts designed for one emergency only because elected officials have failed to address a different emergency. We are a court of law, not policymakers of last resort. And I think I I totally agree. And Title 42 is sort of in a way kind of bailing out Congress for its uh, shameful ineptitude and inaction on this issue. That's that's my take. Uh, will, will you yeah, say? I, mean, you, it, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say. Will, uh, I was just going to say. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no I was going to say. Will you? Will you actually say I agree with Justice Gorsuch? Or would you say rather say I agree with Justice Jackson on this? Yeah, I'll I'll agree with Justice Jackson on go. this. Okay. But I, I think uh, the one thing I wanted to point out is the 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 five in the majority who um you know continued to rely on the, the COVID crisis uh to exclude um uh. uh asylum seekers at the border and make them stay in Mexico, you know, I, I don't think um, a single one of them um, is going to accept that um, the Biden administration can rely on the same COVID crisis uh, to forgive the uh, student debt. Um, so I, I think this is just, uh, you know, yet another example of what I'm going to call the corrupt Supreme Court that you've got, you know, you've got these, and Gorsuch is not one of them this time, but you've got the other five in the majority, I think, who are using the COVID crisis in an, you know, a transparently selective way, you know, so that they can come up with policy outcomes that they want, um, you know, just to say, yes, that 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 does mean that uh, aliens can be kept in Mexico. But it doesn't mean um, that that people who owe a lot of student debt can be given any any relief. Um, and 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 that uh, disparity, you know, exactly tracks, you know, what what the conservative policy preferences are in terms of what the outcomes of those cases should be. Now, I'm I'm going to I'm going to channel Jay here because I think I'm fairly certain Jay's response would be that this is actually a not a, an ideologically corrupt, but a 
conservative in the best possible sense response in that the court is simply maintaining the status quo until the case can be heard. And they, they've agreed to hear this case so as not to disrupt that status quo. And to Jay's way of thinking in many instances, that's exactly what we would want courts to do, not to jump in and to to essentially issue rulings that would result in massive changes in policy, massive real-world effects until they actually have an, uh, uh, the ability to hear the case and weigh the evidence in a in a thoughtful, uh, comprehensive way. And uh, what would you respond to my channeling of Jay in that way? Yeah, that sounds more, it sounds like a better argument than it is, is what I would say, because um, there, there's a couple parts of it that aren't right. Uh, one is the, the idea um, uh, th- that all they're doing is maintaining the status quo. I I I don't think that there's any real chance that this uh, outcome, it, it, when they hear the case on the merits, is going to come out any differently than, than this opinion did. Um, so so I, I think I think they've already telegraphed the, the way the case is coming out, and uh, um, and also in this particular area of Title Forty Two, um, uh, and in the, and and actually also in the student debt. So in both of these particular areas, um, you're talking about uh, statutes that. Um, are you know very very broad and, and give a lot of executive discretion, right? So the status quo that they're talking about maintaining here, you know, never was the status quo under any president prior to Trump. Um, the, the status quo was the opposite under every president prior to Trump, and and Trump was allowed to unilaterally change the status quo, and all all Biden was trying to do was change it back to the status quo that existed. Um, you know, for every president um, before Trump under the exact same statute. Um, so in that sense, you know, it, it seems to me not really accurate to say Biden's the one who wants to make a big change. I'd, I'd say Biden's the one who wants to go back to the status quo and, and he's not being allowed to, to do that. And so it's, it's not I think it's not a, a fair um, invocation of this 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 this, you know, supposed concept that the court is doing the right thing when it simply preserves the status quo. I. I understand, and I, I I'm somewhat sympathetic to that argument. But on the other hand, I also feel that in a very real world way, the uh, the implications of all of a sudden removing Title 42, of lifting Title 42, could uh, potentially uh, catastrophic on top of already a this huge immigration surge. And so I I would be torn. I don't know how I would have ruled on this had I been on the court. I, I can certainly see it both ways. And though I, I'm i a little more inclined to give than you are certainly the, the Supreme Court the benefit of the doubt acting from from decent motives on, on this, at least at least six members of the court right on this. But I don't also I don't necessarily agree that they've telegraphed what their ruling's going to be. I think it's one thing to issue this, uh, to issue the stay, as opposed to actually ruling on the merits, but we'll, we'll find out in this next term. Yeah, we'll find out. All right. So, uh, <laughs> before before we go, Ken, I you, you mentioned that you have a recommend uh, your final recommendation of twenty twenty two to share with everyone. I would love to hear it. Yeah, I don't know how many of our um, uh, uh, listeners will be interested in this one, but it's it's one that I I will recommend anyhow. But um, it's a book about uh, music. And uh, um, uh, there was a, a record company from New Zealand um, in the 1980s called Flying Nun Records that, um, to me, was a very remarkable record label. It put out many of my all-time favorite records, 
And it was uh, these bands that were on this label, you know, were not well known um, in the United States. Um, I'll name some names, but I don't know how many listeners will be familiar. But some of the some of the some of the the the, the most prominent bands on the Flying Nun label were the Chills, the Clean, the Tall Dwarfs, the Bats, the Verlaines, um, and you know, none of them had hits in the United States really. But I always loved all the records on that label, and a, a fantastic book just came out called Needles and Plastic. Flying Nun Records, 1981 to 1988. It's by a Canadian uh, record collector named Matthew Goody. It is completely jam-packed with photographs. It has a complete discography of the label. It has interviews with many of the bands and many of the people who worked at the label. And, you know, I love reading books about uh, obscure music, and I am going to recommend the book Needles and Plastic, Flying Nun Records, 1981 to 1988. Very cool. That sounds like that sounds like an interesting. So you kind of went from incredibly mainstream, right? Chuck Berry to Chuck Berry, yeah. <laughs> Berry <laughs> right. covers the covers the, the the gamut of popular music for sure. Uh, I'm going to go semi popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Semi <laughs> semi popular music, yeah, absolutely. So my recommendation is a book I just recently finished called irrationality a history of the dark side of reason by a philosopher named justin e.h smith uh it's uh just what it sounds like it is a history of irrationality from a philosopher's standpoint just a a fascinating very well written book i've i found it incredibly engaging and certainly there is no shortage of irrationality in our politics and our society in general and looking at it as a philosopher does it was uh it was one of those books, uh, I don't know, Ken, if you've had this experience where you're reading a book and you have to stop every page or two because you're making notes about other books and other things you want to read because the author has sparked so many ideas in your head that it's hard for you to get through more than a few pages without kind of going off. At least that's that was my experience with this book, and it's always a fun thing. So it's it's, it's dra- dramatically increased my reading list. It was a great book to read, and so I highly recommend it, Irrationality. Not as a, you know. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, I don't recommend irrationality. No, I recommend irrationality. <laughs> All right. So before we do close, one other thing I wanted to. Uh, last week, I wasn't sure if I if I thanked our most recent supporters, uh, Robert, Tristan, and Eric. If I didn't, sorry about that. Thank you so much. Also, I wanted to thank Kathy, who recently increased her support for the show. Thank you all very much much. And if you're not already a supporter of politics, guys, we do hope you'll consider becoming one because we wouldn't be able to do this without your support. And when you're a supporter, you get all kinds of good stuff. You get ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get that exclusive midweek show. And uh, yeah, there's also politics guys gear and other stuff at various levels. So check it all out. Just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. And if you'd rather support us on Venmo, we're at politics guys. You can also support us through PayPal. And all of our support links are in the show notes every week, as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you'd like to get that midweek show, but you're not in a position to financially support us, not a problem. Just send me an email. I'm at mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get that all set up for you. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really does help us out if you can subscribe, rate and review us on whatever podcast app you use, and share episodes on social media. And if you've got a question for us or comment or just something you want us to respond to we would love to hear it you can reach us through email 
mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find links in the show notes. And I am getting a setup on Mastodon as well. I don't know how that's going to go, but it's pretty much ready to go. And maybe that'll even be in today's show notes if I can get my act together. So finally, a special thanks, as always, to our fantastic executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you join us.